Well, I'd like you to open up your Bibles to the book of 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. This evening, we're going to take chapter 2 in its entirety. Uh, Of course, it's helpful, as we would often do, to sort of consider what we took a look at last time into chapter 1. Paul introduced himself to the Thessalonian Christians, and he did it in his very typically warm manner. Uh, And then he really spent an extended portion giving thanks for the work of God that had happened among the Thessalonians, how um, they had put their faith in Jesus Christ, how they had become examples to people all around them, and they had this real expectant hope for the return of Jesus Christ. But as we come into chapter 2 of the book of 1 Thessalonians, Paul, in this letter, sort of shifts his idea somewhat. Um, here he begins a section where Paul is going to defend his own character and his own ministry. And you have to say that as both the Bible teacher and as Bible students, we love passages like this because Paul gives us some insight into his own thinking, some insight into the way that he approached ministry and the way that he considered himself. So let's just jump into it here, verses 1 and 2, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain, But even after we had suffered before and were spitefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in much conflict. Now, in this section where Paul will defend his own character in ministry, it's very important for us to understand that it wasn't because Paul was insecure about his ministry. It's not as if Paul was some thin-skinned man who every time he heard the slightest little criticism of himself or his ministry, he felt compelled to rush forth and defend himself. No, this came because Paul actually had many enemies in Thessalonica. And how we know that? We know that from the book of Acts. Remember how he had been cast out of the city of Thessalonica. An angry mob had been raised up from within the city who were jealous of Paul's work there. And they essentially kicked him out of the city and prevented him from continuing in ministry there any longer. As we learned last week from Acts chapter 17, Paul only spent three weekends, three Sabbaths, there teaching in the church or establishing, I should say, the church in Thessalonica. And so these enemies of him like to discredit Paul in his absence, especially because of his hurried departure from the city of Thessalonica. Paul's enemies like to say that he left town quickly because he was a self-seeking coward. Isn't that just the way people work, right? An angry mob drives Paul out of the city with threats of violence, probably even to kill him, to tear him limb from limb if he stays any longer. And then once he escapes for his own life, these same enemies turn around and say to the Thessalonian Christians, you know, if Paul really loved you, he'd stay here. You know, Paul must really be in for it in it just for himself, because, uh, you, you know, if he really cared about you, he, he wouldn't have been driven out. Of town. Those are the ones who very drove him out of town. And so, again, it's very important for us to understand it's not so much that the Thessalonian Christians themselves were suspicious or doubtful about Paul and his missionary work among them. No, no, no. The real problem there was that the Thessalonians were hearing all this chatter about Paul from the community. There were scandal mongers outside of the church who, because of their great hatred for Paul, were spreading all sorts of lies about him. And so here in this chapter, Paul writes in a very personal manner, but I want you to know that it wasn't really a personal issue for Paul. Paul writes this not because he's concerned about himself personally, but because he knows that if he is discredited, 
then the gospel message itself is discredited. And so we can follow out through this chapter many of the different kind of accusations that would have been made against Paul. And, you know, we can go through it point by point, but I'd like a section in William Barclay's commentary on this chapter where he says he sort of reconstructs some of the accusations that were made against Paul by some of the statements that he says in his favor in this chapter. And apparently these were some of the things going around Paul, in the ci- about Paul, I should say, in the city of Thessalonica. They said, hey, Paul has a police record and therefore he's untrustworthy. They, they said Paul is delusional. They said Paul's ministry is based on impure motives. They said Paul deliberately deceives other people. They said Paul preaches to please other people and not God. They, they said Paul is in the ministry as a mercenary to get what he can out of it all materially. They said Paul only wants personal glory. And they said, Paul is something like a dictator. Well, Paul's going to answer those kind of accusations by his words in this chapter. And so he begins by saying, For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. Now, the word vain here can refer either to the result of the ministry. In other words, you know that we really did bear fruit among you. It wasn't fruitless, the, the, the ministry that it had. Or it can res- refer to the character of the ministry. In other words, Paul wasn't just filled with emptiness and self-seeking when he came and did this ministry among the Thessalonians. You see, because it was evident to everyone that Paul's ministry in Thessalonica was a success, it's better to see it as a reference to the character of Paul's ministry. His coming to them was not empty or hollow, as if he was just a salesman or just a marketer. It wasn't as if Paul was just blowing into town with a product to sell. No, it wasn't that kind of vanity, but he came in genuine sincerity. And how does he prove that? We'll continue on here in the verse where he says, but even after we had suffered before... And were spitefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in much conflict. You see, Paul reminds the Thessalonians of his sufferings in the ministry, especially the sufferings that that were fresh, literally fresh on his back as he came into the city of Thessalonica. Did you remember the whole story there? Paul got called by the Macedonian man in the vision, right? Come over and help us. And so Paul says, okay, we're going to Europe to preach the gospel. So he crosses the sea at that point, comes over to to the city of Philippi, which is in the region of Macedonia. He, He does his work in Philippi, and it's so successful that he gets run out of town after being thrown in jail, after being whipped, after being put in some painful sort of confinement, the earthquake shakes the jail, the, the, the shackles fall off the, the hands of Paul and Silas, the Philippian jailer does his whole thing, what must I do to be saved? You remember all of that. But anyway, once you understand that Paul was shamefully mistreated in Philippi, and then when he came into Thessalonica, literally the wounds of his whipping in, in Philippi were fresh on his back. And Paul's saying, you think I'm in this just for my own comfort? You, you think I'm just a salesman going around selling this or that? Look at the stripes on my back. And that demonstrates that that, that isn't just some selfish concern. You see, Paul makes the point that he would not carry on in the face of beatings and conflict if he was only in it for himself. And so when he arrived in Thessalonica, Paul had the wounds on his back to demonstrate that, that listen, if he was in it for himself, he wasn't very smart. Paul wasn't very smart in serving his own self-interest if it was just in it for himself. 
And so here, Paul is, is making this point, and he's saying, listen, even though we were shamefully treated, even though we were persecuted in Philippi, when we came to you, notice it here in verse 2, we were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in much conflict. You see, despite what some of Paul's accusers said, he did not only preach the gospel when it was easy or when it was convenient. He knew what it was like to speak boldly for the Lord, even in much conflict. And so he says, we were bold in our God to speak. The the whole language there is sort of an athletic contest. Paul says, listen, I went into the arena. I fought hard to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, he continues on with this defense, starting here at verse 3. He says, for our exhortation did not come from error or uncleanness, nor was it in deceit. But as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. For neither at any time did we use flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak for covetousness. God is witness. Now notice how he continues on the thought there, starting at verse 3, where he says, Our exhortation did not come from error or uncleanness. The purity of Paul's message made it very clear that there was no deceit or uncleanness or guile in his ministry. Now, you have to understand something. And I think maybe I should have explained this before so you could understand even just the first couple verses of this chapter better. But I hope it's not too late to explain this to you. You have to understand that in the days Paul lived in, there were many competing religions in the Roman Empire. And there were many ministers, or you might even say evangelists, of those different religions. And most of them were motivated by greed and gain. You see, the city of Thessalonica sat on one of the major roads of the Roman Empire called the Ignatian Way. It was the famous highway that went east to west through Macedonia. Thessalonica was an important port, and it was a melting pot city with cultures from all over the world. In that city, there were a staggering variety of religions and religious professionals. In that city, you could find the worship of the gods of the Olympian pantheon, especially Apollo, Athena, and Hercules. There were the native Greek mystery religions that that celebrated Dionysus and the sex and drinking cult. There were the Greek intellectual and philosophical traditions. They were represented there. There were shrines to Egyptian gods, such as Isis, Serapis, Anubis. Also, there were the Roman state cults that deified the political heroes of Rome. And then there were also the Jewish people and the God-fearing Gentiles that associated with them. What I want you to see is that this was a big religious marketplace, and most of those religions were missionary-minded. Have you ever had the experience where, you know, you're walking along at the shopping mall or at the airport and some guy, you know, with a robe and a shaved head wants to give you some piece of literature, you know, or or some other evangelist of this religion or that religion or sometimes a cult or sometimes this or that or the other thing. It was like you couldn't walk three blocks down the street of downtown Thessalonica without some guy trying to put a pamphlet in your hand, trying to convert you to his religion. These religions were missionary-minded, and they sought to spread their faith using traveling evangelists and preachers. Now, many of those missionaries for these false religions were opportunists, and they took everything they could from their listeners, and then they moved on to some other place to find someone to support them. 
And so do you understand how Paul's critics would level this accusation against him? Oh, Paul, he's just another one of those religious businessmen. He blows into town, preaches for a few weeks, takes a few collections, and then he blows on to the next town to fleece the next flock. And Paul has to say, no, no. First of all, remind yourself the way we came into your town, right? With the stripes on our back. And then you should also remember how we conducted ourselves in your town. Our exhortation, verse 3, did not come from error or uncleanness, nor was it in deceit. But he goes on, but as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. You see, Paul used a word there when he says approved by God. He used a word that was associated with approving somebody as being fit for public service. You see, in those days, we remind ourselves that these were the lands of ancient Greece, right? Macedonia and such. These were the areas of ancient Greece, and democracy was highly prized. And in this great democratic tradition, they had to declare that somebody was fit for holding public office. Well, it's the same terminology that Paul uses here when he describes his own fitness for being a minister of the gospel. He says, we have been approved by God. Even so, he says, we speak not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. You see, Paul says, I wasn't just some man pleaser skipping around telling people what they wanted to hear so I could gather a big fat collection. No, Paul knew his gospel wouldn't always please men, but he knew that it was pleasing to God. And I think this is wonderful about Paul. If you take a look at his ministry, not only among the Thessalonians, but but of the broader context of his ministry, you see that Paul wanted to make the gospel as attractive as possible, right? I mean, when he preached in different places, he spoke to them in a way that would make the gospel attractive to them. But he never changed the central character or focus of the gospel. Paul never compromised issues like man's need or or God's savior or the cross or the resurrection or the need to live a new life. Paul never compromised those things. And so he said, going on here, he says, Neither at any time did we use flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak for covetousness. God is witness. I I love that. Paul knew that covetousness always has a cloak. Covetousness is always surrounded by a very noble-sounding goal. You know, the preacher, the, the, the representative of the false religion who just wants to take your money, is that what he tells you? Does he come up and say, hi, you know, I want to seem to be your friend and sort of build your trust with me, and then I want to take all the money I can from you, and then I'm going to move on to the next sucker that I can find. He'll never say that. Covetousness always has a cloak. It's always concealed by a noble-sounding goal. But Paul says, I did not use flattering words that are often that cloak for covetousness. And so... uh, Paul here is really a shining example. This is something that I think that preachers need to watch out for, that that they, first of all, have no cloak for covetousness. Any person in the ministry needs to really check their own heart to see whether or not they're in it for the money. But the other thing that they have to carefully consider is this whole business of flattery. I mean, honestly now, can, can you tell people what they really need to hear before God, or are you afraid before men, and so you flatter them? You, you, you simply tell them what you think they want to hear instead of what God's message really is to them. This is a, a, a true test in the heart for any person who's called to teach God's word. Now, Paul goes on here describing here, verses 6 and 7, his very gentle and humble attitude among the Thessalonians. He says, Nor did we seek glory from men, 
either from you or from others, when we might have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. You see, isn't that Paul's just revealing the heart of his character? Now, might I say that this letter of Paul's would have had no effect with the Thessalonians if it wasn't actually true what he described to them. You know, what if the Thessalonians read this letter and say, oh, wait a minute, Paul really did seek a lot of glory when he was among us for those three weeks. You know, he didn't. That's why he could write the letter. He's appealing to what they knew by their experience. So he says, we did not seek glory from men. When Paul ministered among the Thessalonians, he was absolutely unconcerned for his own personal glory. He didn't need fancy introductions or lavish praise. His satisfaction came from his relationship with Jesus, not from the praise of people. You see, I have to say that this is, again, is another heart check for people in ministry. Paul didn't seek glory from men because his needs for security and acceptance were met primarily in Jesus. But Paul didn't live his life trying to seek and earn the acceptance of man. He ministered from an, a, a place of understanding his own identity in Jesus Christ. Now, even though, he says, we might have made demands as apostles of Christ. Paul says, listen, as an apostle of Jesus Christ, there's a sense in which I have a right to make demands upon people, but I did not take those rights among you. No, I came to the Thessalonians to give something to you, not to take anything from you. I did not come with demands as an apostle. But then he gives this statement here in verse 7 that's so beautiful. But we were gentle among you, just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. Now think about that nursing mother. There's the nursing mother cherishing her child, right? You can see the little baby at the breast of the nursing mother. I just ask you this. Does that mother expect anything from the child? No. The only thing the the mother expects from that child is a dirty diaper that it's going to have to clean up later, right? That, That mother is there in one of the most unselfish relationships that there could ever be, the relationship that the mother has towards the child. Now, let me say this. One of the most selfish relationships there could ever be is the attitude that the child has towards the mother, right? The child is pretty selfish in regard to the mother. It's not thinking about the mother's needs one bit, but that's all the mother thinks about. And Paul says, listen, just like a nursing mother, we only look to give to you. There were some among the Thessalonians that accused Paul of ministering out of self-interest. But Paul just asks him, remember what it was like when we were among them. Please remember this and you'll put away the idea that we were there for our own glory. Now he goes on to further demonstrate this starting at verse 8 where he says, so affectionately longing for you, We were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become dear to us. For you remember, brethren, our labor and toil, laboring night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. We preach to you the gospel of God. Paul says, listen, we were well pleased. We were happy to do it. We made sacrifices to minister among you Thessalonians. We made sacrifices reflected by the marks upon our own back. We made sacrifices demonstrated by the hardships when we were run out of town in Thessalonica, but we were well pleased to do this. The the, the things we sacrificed to minister among you were not a burden to us. We were happy to do it because, and I love the phrase that he uses here in verse 8, because you had become dear to us. 
Now, you know what I think is amazing about that? It shows what a beautiful supernatural bond there is in ministry. How long was Paul among the Thessalonians? About three weeks. And yet that was plenty of time to establish a genuinely dear bond between Paul and these people. So dear that he says, we gave you not only the gospel of God, but did you see it there in verse 8? He says, but also our own lives. And of course, that's what makes effective preaching. Paul's preaching was effective because he didn't just present the gospel as if it was a lesson to be learned, but he shared with them their own lives and he gave it all because of the great love that he had for them. You know, it's been rightly said that people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Well, Paul knew a lot, but he cared a lot. And he demonstrated both of those to the Thessalonians, and it resulted in very effective ministry. And then he goes on to say, remarkably so, in verse 9, For you remember, brethren, our labor and toil, laboring night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. We preach to you the gospel of God. Do you understand what he's speaking about there? You see, Paul's saying, We were not financially supported by you, Thessalonians. We worked with our own hands to put the food on our own table during the time that we were with you. Now, we must say, uh, from passages like 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul recognized that he had the right to be supported by those people that he ministered to. But yet, Paul voluntarily gave up that right to set himself apart from the missionaries of the false religions that were so common in that world. Paul denied his rights and took a higher standard upon himself. And so listen, he says, I started work before dawn. I I worked all through the day. Did you see what he says there? Our labor and toil for laboring night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. I think Paul is a rebuke to anybody who's lazy in the ministry. He says, listen, this is hard work, and we put this work upon ourselves so that we would not be a burden to anybody. Now, again, you can just get the feeling as this letter is read among the Thessalonians that they're saying, you remember how Paul was? How could we believe for a moment these lies that that people on the outside are saying about the Apostle Paul, that somehow he was in it for his own gain? Hey, hello, if Paul was in it for his own gain, would he have worked so hard for his own living when he was among us. He didn't ask for anything from us. So he goes on here, verse 10, following up on the same thought. He says, You are our witnesses, and God also, how devoutly and justly and blamelessly we behaved ourselves among you who believe, as you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you, as a father does his own children, that you should walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. I think it's marvelous that Paul could freely appeal to his own life as an example. Could you imagine that? Paul just writes to the Thessalonians, he says, you just remember how we were among you, and that's all the defense we need. You are our witnesses, and God also, how devoutly and justly and blamelessly we behaved ourselves among you who believe. You see, Paul didn't have to say, don't look at me, look only at Jesus. Paul said, yes, look at Jesus, but, but you can also look at my life because the power of Jesus is real in my life. And so I have a testimony to give you too from my own life. 
You see, Paul was comfortable in the idea of other Christians following his example. And that's a very worthy goal for any Christian today, to live a life that declares, again, could you say this, how devoutly and justly and blamelessly we behaved ourselves among others. That's the kind of life that draws other people to Jesus Christ. But it wasn't just that Paul lived a pure and a holy and and a life before them that was a good example. But he also says, if you notice, how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you that you should walk worthy of God. Paul says, listen, I had a right on walk, and that was evident to you. But at the same time, I exhorted you, Thessalonians, to walk the same way. He could tell them, you should walk worthy of God because my life and my message were consistent. i got to say, as we just take a little pause here between verses 12 and 13, it's a very worthy question to ask ourselves. I mean, can you honestly go up to a young believer and tell them, follow Jesus just like I do? I mean, really, should, shouldn't every one of us be able to say that? Shouldn't every one of us be able to go to a young... Now, obviously, we're not trying to say we're sinlessly perfect, and we may end up telling that person, listen, follow Jesus like I do. You're going to learn some lessons about repentance if you follow Jesus like I do. But yet, I am following Jesus, and you'll go closer to him if you follow him the way that I do. Well, Paul could write that. And I think sometimes we just need a greater challenge to our own lives than we've commonly been able to give to ourselves. Say, no, no, I insist. I I, I do want to live the kind of Christian life that is a genuine example to other people. Well, Paul isn't going to spend the whole book of 1 Thessalonians, not even this whole chapter, defending his own ministry. I I sense, as I read this chapter and other chapters where Paul does a similar kind of thing, he's somewhat uncomfortable with it. He He doesn't really like talking so much about himself. So in this transition between verses 12 and 13, he's shifting the focus already back to the Thessalonians, thanking God for his work among them. Notice it here, verse 13. For this reason, we also thank God without ceasing, Because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. Now, Paul's coming back to some themes that he touched on in the first chapter of his letter to the Thessalonians, or his first letter to the Thessalonians. And he's remembering with great thanksgiving how it was that the Thessalonians received the word of God. He said, when you received the word of God, which you heard from us. Now, I think we should just pause right there in those first few phrases of verse 13 and realize that Paul says, when you received the word of God. You see, Paul earnestly believed and he taught other people that God had spoken to man and that we have recorded for us the word of God. Isn't that significant? I mean, let's just pause and think about that for a moment. If God has spoken to man, isn't that the most important thing in the world? I mean, doesn't it really command our attention? Doesn't it really command our focus to understand and to receive and to know what God has spoken to man? Paul believed in a voice that speaks to mankind with the authority of eternity and a voice that speaks above mere human opinion. And since we have this word of God, we have a true voice of authority. Now, some people like to say that, yes, there is a word of God. We just can't be sure of what it says. 
They'd say, well, yes, of course you have your Bible. Very nice that you have your Bible. But here's the problem. You have your interpretation of the Bible, and I have my interpretation of the Bible. So, so we, we certainly just can't really tell what it says for sure. Now listen, I will agree that there are certainly some places where the word of God is hard to precisely interpret. But there are not many of such places. If we do not know what God has spoken, then he may as well as not have spoken to us at all, right? If God's given us a message that's impossible to understand with any kind of certainty, what's the point of him speaking at all? No, but there is a word of God, and notice it here. It says that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it, not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God. The Thessalonians received the word of God just as they should have received it. I want you to notice this. Paul presented it as the word of God, and they received it as the word of God. I think a lot of times people don't receive it as the word of God because preachers don't preach it as if the word, it is the word of God. Preachers are always sort of, you know, hesitating and they're afraid to put the word of God in front of people. They're afraid to be very insistent upon it. No, Paul presented it as if it were the word of God and people received it as the word of God. And not everybody receives the message as the word of God. Yet when they do not receive it that way, let me tell you this, it reflects upon them, not upon the message. Listen, I have to say, I perceive, and I trust that you do also, we perceive that this is the word of God and it is spoken into our soul. And so you say, well, what if somebody else comes along and says, no, it's not the word of God. I don't believe it is. Does that shake your faith? I don't think so. We have encountered this, and we know that it is the word of God. And if somebody else is unable to perceive it, it doesn't change the fact that we know and that we have learned that this is the word of God. I love a quote from Charles Spurgeon. He preaches a sermon on this text, and he talked about an Irishman who was uh, convicted or, or, or being tried in a court on a charge of, uh, of murder. And so there he was in the court on a trial of murder, and there, there were four people who saw him commit the crime. And so these four people get up in court and, and say this Irishman, well, I saw him do it, I saw him do it, I saw him do it four times over. And the Irishman was his lawyer in his own defense, and he thought he could really get around this in the court. What he did is he says, well, yes, it's true that there are four people who say they saw I did it, but I can give you 40 people who didn't see me do it. And he thought that that would somehow persuade the court. Well, listen, if we have experienced that this is the word of God, it doesn't matter if there's 50 or 50,000 who haven't, because we know that this is the word of God. Now, again, we know it. Why? Again, verse 13. This is a great memory verse. But as it is the word of God, as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. You see, Paul's confidence in the word of God, it wasn't a matter of wishful thinking or blind faith. Paul could see the word of God effectively working in those who believe. And that's the beautiful thing about the word of God. That gives us such confidence in God's word. God's word works. It doesn't just bring information. It doesn't just produce feelings. There is power in the word of God to change lives. 
I think it's interesting. You know, I, I kind of like watching movies. Uh, it's somewhat of a hobby. I like watching old movies. And, you know, we just enjoy movies together, my wife and I. And so we like to watch movies. And I've seen a lot of movies, some very impressive movies, artistically, you know, grand movies, just wonderful movie, movies that you go away and really feel something after watching. Maybe you have to wipe a little tear from your eye or something like that. All kinds of movies we've enjoyed and we've watched. But never can I say that a movie's changed my life. Never. Never can I say that a movie has effectively worked with them. Even if I felt greatly impacted at the moment, you know, even if you leave the theater saying, wow, what a great movie. I mean, within a few hours, if not a few minutes, it's forgotten. It's gone. So I want you to understand that the Bible isn't just like some theatrical presentation that has some kind of emotional or intellectual effect upon us. Not one bit. There is power in the word of God. It effectively works in you who believe. Now, as evidence of this effective working, see what it did in the life of the Thessalonians. This is starting at verse 14, where it says, For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God which are in Judea in Christ Jesus. For you also suffered the same things from your own countrymen, just as they did from the Judeans who killed both the Lord Jesus and their own prophets and have persecuted us. And they do not please God and are contrary to all men, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they may be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. And again, this is a sort of passage. These three verses here, verses 14, 15, and 16, it should make us give a little bit of pause as we read this, because in all of my remembrance of the writings of the Apostle Paul, these are about the three verses in which I would say he is the strongest in speaking out against the Jewish persecution that he was suffering in this season of his ministry. You see, Paul is reminding the Thessalonians that they suffered the same things. It, when the Thessalonians responded to the gospel, they became targets of persecution. And as they did, they weren't alone. Because those among the churches of God have often suffered persecution. And the Thessalonian Christians became imitators of those who had suffered before them, specifically those who had suffered in Judea. Now, let, let's face it, and this is something that is that people is very feel very... Um, they feel a great deal of difficulty talking about today. But, but let me just give it to you as honestly and as straightforwardly as I can. Paul here is talking about the Jewish persecution that came against Christians in the first century. And we have to admit, there was definite, brutal, and, and tough persecution by Jews against Christians in the first century. Now, many people are hesitant to say that. You know why? Because they think that if we recognize that, that it somehow justifies the far more horrific record that Christians have had in persecuting Jews since the first century. Might I say, it does not justify it for one moment. If we take a look at the whole span of Christian history. Let us remember that the Christians have persecuted the Jews almost infinitely more 
than Jews have ever persecuted Christians. I mean, you, you can't even compare the measure of the two. But at the same time, we cannot deny what the biblical and what the historical record is, that at least at the very beginning of Christianity, there were many Jews who resented this new sect among Judaism, this new group that was taking away many of their converts or potential converts. And there were riots instigated by Jews who were angry at what the gospel was doing among them. Now again, I I say that just so we understand, not for a single moment to justify in the smallest way the horrific record that Christians had since that time in returning evil and vicious persecution uh, upon the Jews. It was a horrible, horrible record. One that I'm very grateful to say has been changed enormously in the last hundred years or so. You know, you've got to understand that there was a time not too long ago, within the last few hundred years, when, when Bible-believing Christians would consider it almost an obligation to hate the Jews. Thank heavens that that is so different today in the evangelical world. Thank heavens that people in the evangelical world today understand very clearly God has a love for the Jewish people and a plan for the Jewish people and wants to see them come to salvation and safety and that we should bless these descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Nevertheless, we have to deal with what Paul says here. Paul says very carefully, if you notice here, he says in verse 14, For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God, which are in Judea, in Christ Jesus. For you also suffered the same things from your countrymen, just as they did from the Jews. You see, I have to say this very honestly. Who was it that ran Paul out of Thessalonica. It was a group of angry Jewish people who were angry at Paul's success in preaching at the synagogue. They were angry at Paul's success in ministry to the Jews and to those who were on their way to becoming Jews. They were angry at it, and so they persecuted. These were the ones who were speaking very ill of Paul in his absence, and these were the ones who were making life difficult for the Thessalonians. And that's why he says, again, very strongly, verse 15, who killed both the Lord Jesus and their own prophets and have persecuted us. Paul comforted the suffering Christians among the Thessalonians with the assurance that they were not the first ones to suffer this way. The Lord Jesus faced persecution, and the Christians in Judea faced it too. Additionally, Paul and his associates were also persecuted. Notice this, in mentioning this, Paul says that it was the Jews who killed the Lord Jesus. Jesus, He wrote that his own countrymen, the Judeas, had killed the Lord Jesus. But Paul knew very well that the Jews of Judea were not the only ones responsible for the murder of Jesus. The Romans had their full share of guilt so that both Jew and Gentile were guilty. And by the way, I think that was ordained in the plan of God. I think there would have been something very lacking If anybody could look at the historical record and say that it was the Jews that killed Jesus and not the Gentiles, or that anybody could say it was the Gentiles and not the Jews. No, no. God made certain that there was blood enough on the hands of both Jew and Gentile so that everybody could look at the crucifixion of Jesus and realize that I had a stake in it. Because when you get right down to it, who put Jesus upon the cross? Well, it was you and I. It was our sin. It was our responsibility before God that put him up there. 
Anyway, Paul refers to, to the, the obstinate attitude of these people where he says, and they do not please God and they're contrary to all men. But Paul comforted with the awareness that they were right and that they were the ones pleasing God. Now, this was a necessary assurance because they were being persecuted by religious people. And, you know, when you're being persecuted by religious people, the questions will start coming into your mind, right? Well, maybe they are right. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe God's on their side. and he's not. They certainly seem to be winning. Maybe they're in the right and I'm in the wrong. Paul says, no, no, no. You need to understand that you're in the right. They do not please God. They are contrary to all men. And then in verse 16, he gets really kind of to the, to the core of the problem here. Notice it. He says, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they may be saved. So always to fill up the measure of their sins. Paul here reveals what offended the religious persecutors of the Thessalonians so much. They were outraged that Gentiles could be saved without first becoming Jews. And this exclusive attitude, Paul says, it fills up the measure of their sins. Now, this is what you need to understand. Jews in Paul's day were not opposed to Gentiles coming to God. They wanted Gentiles to come to God. As a matter of fact, you can argue that this was one of the periods of time when Jews were most, if you would say, evangelistic. They call it proselytizing, but they were, they were out trying to bring Gentiles into Judaism very aggressively during this period in history. Oh, no, no, they were not opposed to Gentiles coming to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, what they were absolutely opposed to were Gentiles coming to Jesus. That's what they did not want. And so their fierce opposition was due to the fact that Christian missionaries offered salvation to the Gentiles without demanding that they first become Jews. And that's what soured these people so much. But then Paul says here in verse 16, imparting some confidence to these persecuted Thessalonians, he says at the end of verse 16, but wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. You see, that's comforting to them. Assuring them, he says, listen, God is taking care of your persecutors. You don't need to lift up arms against them. You do not need to persecute them in return. And when Christians forget this, they often disgrace and curse themselves by returning persecution for persecution towards others. You see, we need to understand this. Paul's closing line there, talking about wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. He's talking about what God does to take care of the persecutors. If somebody is persecuting you, and somehow the tables become turned, and you have the opportunity to return it to them, don't. Ever. You say, well, well they're worthy of it. They, they, they should be punished for their persecution. Let God punish them. Let God do it. Keep your hands free from it. Now, in the last few verses of the chapter, Paul's going to explain something else that he's been accused of, right? He, he was accused of being sort of this um, religious salesman who came in and got whatever he could from them and went out. I think he refuted that very well. He showed how giving and careful and loving and hardworking he was among them. But here's the other thing that he was criticized for. The, the, the Thessalonians, who hated Paul, said to the Thessalonian Christians, you know, if Paul really loved you, he'd be here, wouldn't he? three weeks with you. What good is that? 
You know, if Paul loved you, he'd be here. So now he's going to explain his absence. Look at here in verse 17. He says, But we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, endeavored more eagerly to see your face with great desire. Therefore, we wanted to come to you, even I, Paul, time and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? For you are our glory and joy. See, Paul knew that the Thessalonians appreciated the comfort that he gave. But the Thessalonians were also wondering, listen, if Paul loves us this much, why is he sending letters? Why doesn't he come to us in person and encourage us with these things? They would naturally think, wouldn't it be better for Paul to be with us in person? But Paul says, I want you to know that it's not a lack of love. It's not a lack of desire that keeps me there from being with you. No, it's not that. And then I have to say this. It blows my mind what he says here in verse 18. He says, we wanted to come to you, but Satan hindered us. Now, it wasn't because Paul didn't want to visit the Thessalonians. He did. It was that Satan hindered Paul and his associates. Paul assured the Thessalonians that he desired to be with them, but he was hindered by Satan. And this happened, if you notice it there, in verse 18, he says, time and again this happened. I think it's very interesting here. The Thessalonians were mostly Gentile converts. Yet when Paul mentioned Satan here, he gave no further explanation. This shows that in the few weeks that Paul was there in Thessalonica, he taught them something about Satan and spiritual warfare because he doesn't need to explain anything more in his letter right here. But do you notice what he says? Satan hindered us. I have to say, I read this and it blows my mind. Paul, in all of his apostolic ministry and authority, he could still be blocked by Satan. Now, Paul did not just receive this a hindrance from Satan in a fatalistic way. Paul didn't just say, oh, I'm hindered by Satan. Oh, boo-hoo, nothing I can do. Oh, well, I guess Satan's hindering. I'll go home now. No, Paul didn't do that at all. First of all, notice what he did. Paul understood that this was a satanic hindrance. He knew that it was not random circumstance, but it was a direct attack from Satan. Paul had the discernment to figure out where this was coming from. Secondly, Paul had faith. Did you see what he says here? He says in verse 18, he says, but we wanted to, excuse me, no, I'm sorry, verse 17. He says, but we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short time in presence. You see, that's Paul's faith. He knew that it would only be a short time until this hindrance would be overcome. So first, he had the discernment to know it was Satan. Secondly, he had the faith to know that it would not last forever. Third, Paul was committed to fight against the roadblock any way that he could. He said, listen, if I can't be there in person, then my letter will go for me and teach and encourage the Thessalonians in my absence. I want you to think about this. Many scholars believe that this letter of 1 Thessalonians was Paul's earliest letter written as an apostle to a church. If this is the case, what was it that got Paul started on his career of writing apostolic letters inspired by the Holy Spirit ending up in our Bible? What started it? Satan's hindrance. 
And you know, when Satan saw the great work that God did through these letters, he probably regretted that he ever hindered Paul at all. And then finally, we can say, God brought the victory. Acts chapter 20, verses 1 through 5, describes Paul's eventual return to Thessalonica and the other churches in the area. Did you see the four things Paul did? Paul tells you, I'm an apostle, yet Satan hindered me. But first, I had the discernment to see it. Secondly, I had the faith to know it would be conquered. Third, I fought against it in any way that I could. I sent a letter if I couldn't be there in person. And fourth, it was eventually overcome because Acts chapter 20 tells us that Paul ended up there. No wonder Paul says in verse 20, for you are our glory and joy. Paul assured the Thessalonians that he could never forget them because they were his glory and his joy. His inability to visit them should never be taken as a lack of love towards the Thessalonians. I wonder what it would be like if you were to ask Paul, Paul, tell me about the crown in heaven that's waiting you. I wonder if Paul wouldn't sometimes say, listen, I don't need a crown in heaven. I've got precious jewels all over this earth that I've poured in ministry to. They are my crown of victory. Every person whom we bring to Jesus Christ and every person that we disciple and pour the love of Jesus into, it's like a crown of victory for ourselves. And so we see this. We see this that even though Paul was hindered, he didn't let it stop him at all. As a matter of fact, he found a way to further his ministry despite the satanic hindrance. Well, I hope that leaves you encouraged here tonight. When you see how Paul would not be stopped from going from Philippi to Thessalonica, the character of his ministry among them, and how he would not allow satanic hindrance to get in the way, no, he saw the word of God go forward in its power because people like the Thessalonians were receiving it and responding to it in faith. That's exactly how it should be for us. I mean, I don't know what kind of hindrance that you feel that you have in your life. And if God's giving you the discernment to know that it is indeed a satanic hindrance, but you should do the same things. You should apply some discernment to it. You should apply faith to it. And third, you should look for any way around it that you can find. You should keep pushing against it. The last thing we want to do is sense Satan's attack and then give up. No, no, no. That's never our place as believers. Unfortunately, we can do this because of the continuing power of the Word of God at work in us. So let's pray. Father, when we take a look at passages like this in your Word and see the great work of the Word of God among the Thessalonians, uh, Lord, it encourages us because it makes us look to our own life and see how the Word of God is working in our life. And Lord, we just pray for more power, more love, more evidence of the fruit and the working of your Spirit in our life, That, Father, we would be a great testimony to people, that we could actually encourage other people and bless them by simply the lives that we live, that we could tell people, follow us as we follow Jesus Christ. Uh, Bring that to fruit in us, Lord. We thank you and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.